I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club 69, back after a pretty long hiatus. I think that's right. That's so, right. Drew, a little sabbatical. So we've had six, six weeks um, off. So, yeah, Drew, you've been away. In, I've been in away. In the Middle East. Mysterious to, Middle East. Do you want to give us a, just a quick rundown of your trip? Where you've the been people the are really nice. Weeks? Yep. The people are really nice. Perhaps not to each other, but okay. certainly to outsiders. <laughs> right. What, what was your itinerary? I uh, spent a bit of time uh, here and there okay. and everywhere in between. I feel like you're, for some reason you're not interested in disclosing the itinerary <laughs> to our listeners. because I'm a spy at all. Okay, right. Well, okay. I thought that was going to be a much longer bit. I thought it was going to be this whole discussion of the best, like the highlights of the trip and what you're like. Okay, let's just move on to the podcast. Then. I'm going to bring it back to that at the end, though. We've got a little Easter we'll egg work about our, that. Yeah, okay. we'll work our way back around. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Turn around. Okay, you're Turn a, the beat around. You're a, okay. Okay. Hi, um. Sorry for being interested in your life. So let's get straight into it then. Okay, so first TV show this week is The Last of Us. Yeah. Um, so yeah. as most listeners will know, it's a video game adaptation. Yeah. It's an adaptation of the game released in 2013. Yeah. It's the what first... would you say are the major differences between the video game and the television adaptation? Well, interestingly, I've watched quite a bit of the game. Really? So I okay. watched our friend Dave play it because oh. it came out 10 years ago. It came yeah. out just when our friend Dave was really into video games yeah. and was basically treating them like cinema, yeah. interactive cinema. This definitely is one of the games that I felt you know, somewhat uh, longing that I was more of a gamer mm. because it looked so incredible and atmospheric and, and the premise was so compelling. So haunting. And look, my issue is always, I'm, just, I'm staring down at my microphone here, which is already swiveling pretty <laughs> precariously. I mean, how can a tripod not be stable? Um, yeah, but I... I haven't got great dexterity or tactility with games, so I like to watch people playing them. And mm. I remember there was a time when I would just go over to Dave's place and just watch him play games. And mm. Last of Us had come out around that time. I've also watched um, quite a few Let's Play of videos of Last of Us. So you know Let's Play is... No, what is Let's Play? It's like an online mode, I guess, where you watch professional gamers go through a game. Oh, really? So it's, okay. it's basically the closest you can get to watching the game as a film. Oh. So. I, look, I don't know in granular detail how similar it is, but I've been told by people who are fans of the game that there are some scene-for-scene, shot-for-shot like remakes in the... Oh, really? Yeah, okay. so oh, it correlates wow. directly shout with the Shout-out to the gamers. Shout-out to the gamers. <laughs> um, prestige, prestige TV shout-out. And just to give... So in terms of prestige TV, yeah, so it's the first HBO ad- adaptation of a game. Apparently it's the biggest Canadian television production ever. Oh, this is a Canadian, it's Canadian production. Oh, really? You didn't get the subtle Canadian... <laughs> Canadian bent. Canadian inflection. <laughs> um, and just to give a rundown of the plot, the plot is much the same as a video game. You've got... Well, I mean, let's start with the broad aspects of the plot. I mean, the last couple of years, I've finally got my head around viruses. Now we're on to, <laughs> now we're on to fungi. Viruses is so 2022. Yeah, viruses. If you think viruses were bad, wait till you hear about fungi. So the fungus is... The, so basically... The, there's a bit of a staggered opening. It starts with, a, um, I guess, an interview with a couple of mycologists. Oh. Fungus. <laughs> I, I, I know a lot about like mycologists because when I was at uni, I, this is a fun fact about me for people who don't know, I started off doing biology and chemistry. Yeah. And I had like a really gay mycology lecturer, oh, like right. very very overtly gay. Oh, you, you studied mycology? I did a mycology unit. And right. at a time at the university when there wasn't a lot of openly gay people, just it kind of endeared me to mycology for life. Right. So I just I did, I did his mycology unit yeah. just because I was like, this guy's a role model. Yeah, yeah. So so, so anyway, yeah. so yeah, um, so it starts in 1968 with a couple of mycologists having a like a conversation about the dangers that fungi yeah, pose yes. to humanity. Yes. Then it jumps to 2003, where we meet the main character uh, Joel, played by Pedro Pascal. 
who has massive resting apocalypse survival face. Don't you think? <laughs> like this guy, I don't know. Like when he has I saw, a lacrimose face. Yeah, when I saw Hang him, I was like, face. this guy was made to be. In a, <laughs> and that, so think of the, the opening as, I guess, the first act, the 1968 stuff as an abbreviated first act. Then in the second act, it deals with basically the first 24 hours and the emergence of the fungus. And in mm. the process... Uh, Joel's daughter is killed by a soldier, by a US soldier. And then it jumps 20 years later where America now seems to be basically a series of city-states mm. um, run by an overarching military dictatorship. Yeah. And Joel is now a member of a resistance group or the loosely Fireflies. affiliated with the Fireflies. <laughs> and the plot, I think, is actually a little bit ambiguous in some ways, but it turns out he has to transport a young girl out of the city and across the wastelands that have been left ravaged by the virus. This the girl, reasons unknown. The reasons are not clear. And this girl's name is Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey. And I know that in the game, the Joel-Ellie relationship is the core of it. So mm. it, she obviously becomes a kind of surrogate daughter. So that, that's that's where it takes. It starts with some discourse about fungi. Then it jumps to the first 24 hours of this new pandemic. Mm. And then it jumps to the future um, or the present, our present. And... Part of what's interesting, I guess, is that that third act, which takes up the majority of the series, is kind of largely preoccupied with the political and military consequences of the fungus. And there's not actually a mm. lot in there. Like something you never find out, for example, is, and maybe this must be deliberate, is like the path of transmission. Mm. So there's nothing, although the virus, and the way the virus operates is it's a bit like the zombie viruses. It seems to be that infect ants in the Amazon. It turns people against themselves and it basically turns them into zombies. Mm. And we see some images of how the virus spreads through people and how the aftermath of the virus, it basically goes through them and turns them into, they look like a, a fungus complex. Yes. But there's not a lot in here about how it spreads. And in this third act, which takes place in this Boston city state, yeah. There are people who get very close up to other people and very close up to dead bodies and very close to the virus without any particular concerns. So there's mm. obviously some kind of time window. But yeah, from the perspective of our pandemic present, that epidemiological stuff is is left out. Yes. So yeah, well, I think well, that, that makes it slightly scarier. It does, yeah. Not and explaining it, the it does. The pathway of transmission, which I think is is consistent with you know, a lot of people's early, the early days of the pandemic mm. where people were not sure exactly how people contracted. Well, exactly. So it's kind of at those two tail ends, isn't it? The second act of the film is when people are just learning of the, of the fungus's existence. Mm. And then by the third act, it's become so normal that no one really needs to talk about how it's transmitted. It's, yeah. just, it's just known. But yes. yeah, that, that third bit is almost like a political thriller. Um, but yeah, what, what were your impressions of this? Yeah, I, I know this is, this is a series that's got enormous critical acclaim. Mm. Um, it comes from Neil Druckmann, who was the original creator of the game, mm. and also Craig Mazin, mm. who's probably most famous for uh, show running the Ch Chernobyl miniseries, which oh, I thought okay. was fantastic. That makes sense. Um, and actually has a background in comedy, so it was really, really, really? prominent in the scary movie franchise. <laughs> and then, really? And then, yeah, had I guess tried his hand at drama, was enormously successful. Right, um, well, like from Scary Movie 5 to Chernobyl. <laughs> to Chernobyl. Um, yeah, I think Chernobyl is still one of my favourite series of the re the last five years. I um, love that bit in Chernobyl where they say that, I think it's a certain point late in the explosion, where they say there has never been anywhere as dangerous on Earth as just above yes, the smoke the sublime here. of the, uh, the reactor yeah, core. That's extraordinary. <laughs> the ceiling above the reactor core. That makes sense, yeah. doesn't it? Because the kind of global, global apocalypse, global catastrophe. And this, I remember from the game that it, it almost has a kind of 
yeah, that post-apocalyptic mode in gaming often seems to dovetail with failed communist futures. And yeah. So it's, it's kind of part of the same thing. Yeah, it makes sense. There's definitely a synergy mm. between Chernobyl and this. Mm. And yeah, the acclaim going into a series like this, that you know, you've got to go through a prism of enormous acclaim. Mm. And I thought this was this was really powerful. And mm. this is a genre I think that's been really overworked. Mm. I mean, especially in te- TV, especially in the last five years. I mean, how many post-apocalyptic series mm. have we seen? I mean, it's almost every YA adaptation is a is a post-apocalyptic text, um, as is a lot of you know mm. you know uh, prestige drama. To give that sense of gravitas, they set it in a post-apocalyptic future, like um, many, many of the series that we profiled. So how do you make this genre fresh? Mm. And also, I mean, I feel like there's been... It's weird, although the pandemic's only a couple of years old, I already feel saturated with pandemic content. So yes. this kind of deals with that in an innovative way too. I also thought, like, it's just quite hard, I think, to make a good adaptation of a game. Yeah, well, absolutely. Like there, a, there have been almost no are successful... Are there that many great, like... I don't think there's any. Like, I think this might, may be, might be the first critically acclaimed video game adaptation. Like, I guess the ones that tend to be to work like Sonic the Hedgehog or Super Mario Brothers work kind of as camp. Yeah. But a really serious, dramatic adaptation of a game. And maybe there's something about television that lends itself to that as well. Yeah. Um, Did you get a sense from watching the video game that there was much of a plot beyond the atmospherics? I think the plot, the emotional kernel of the plot comes between um, Joel and Ellie. Is it just a journey narrative? It's a ju- from yeah. what I remember, it's a journey narrative. And look, I think that part of it doesn't translate as well to the big screen, that relationship, for reasons maybe we'll come back to in a moment. I didn't think it was bad, but it one of my probably my least favourite part. Um, but yeah, in terms of the world building and the visuals, I thought it was really incredible. And I, re- I really love that kind of second bit. There was just something so eerie about the way it captured the moments just before the pandemic hits. And I think it's mm. a little bit like Chernobyl, that that, as you said, that almost sublime quietness, that sublime hush just before something happens that irrevocably changes the world. Mm. So, you know, it's like it's like imagining those um, last couple of moments in the, the Huanan seafood market. Yes. Like those last couple of moments before everything went viral and the, literally, and just that nexus between, you know, almost microscopic or microcosmic you know, encounters and enormous permanent global effects so yeah. something that reminded me of like you know we're both a big fan of the tw- film twister and some of the best bits in twister are those just first subliminal apprehensions of the tornado mm. the wind chimes mm, yes just slight, slight breeze and i thought that second part did a really good job of just capturing all those just little just slight changes in the texture of the character's days which suggested something massive on the horizon, but that you couldn't quite. Yes, yeah, something was in, happening in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, and then it was a sense that there was you know, little hints here and there. It's yeah. almost a an encroaching mystery. Yeah, it's, it's a, a texture, it's yeah, a slight texture. Yeah. It's it kind of reminds me, like I think something Christopher Nolan. It's kind of a bit of a lateral way of looking at it, but I, you know, I feel like after September 11, something directors kind of strove to try and capture was that that sublimity of terror spectacle and something that happens mm. a lot in Christopher Nolan's films is that that ripple you feel when something massive is happening in your environment mm. it just hasn't quite got to you yet yeah this was like that and I thought the scariest moment was actually in this first bit so there's a scene where the uh, Joel's daughter in this first bit goes over to a neighbor's house and the neighbor has a old like a the neighbor herself is quite old but her mother is is infirm and is in a wheelchair I think mm. And just in the background, while the girl is doing something fairly nondescript, the woman kind of convulses. She's obviously being overtaken by the virus. By yes. the time the girl turns around, she looks completely normal. It's a very eerie scene. Like It's like this slight ripple 
in reality. It's like you've seen It Chapter 2. Yes. And that scene with the old woman? When yes. they go to the old woman's house, like a really creepy scene. Yeah, that just, was a good scene. Just a slight... I mean, when I got to the ritual of Chud, <laughs> It Chapter, like that last friggin' an hour on the ritual of Chud in It Chapter 2, like, give me a break. The old lady uh, scene, though, was very effective. That was one yeah. film I was like, how can this possibly as bad be as bad as people are saying it is? And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, that's how. <laughs> that's exactly how. But, like, that scene was really scary. So I just thought that... That eeriness of just this, and these tiny little hints of something enormous happening, coming mm, together yeah. very suddenly was, I thought that was scarier yes. than the stuff later in the film. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, as a, um, a card carrying mycologist, <laughs> do you think this was, should I be scared about fungi? I, I wasn't until then. I, I had no <laughs> idea that fungi were this dangerous. Like it. I mean, something that kind of... And that's something interesting too. Like, it, it's clear that the fungus doesn't... It's not simply like a virus that gets into your bloodstream. It's clear that it, it changes your body. Yes. And it overtakes your body. And that's not really explained. Like, you see there's these very flamboyant images of bodies kind of splayed against walls with fungi com- coming out of every yeah. orifice yeah, and wrapping the, up their hands. The and empty arms. man scenes. The empty man <laughs> scenes. The empty man scenes, exactly. Um, and they remind me a bit of annihilation as well. Like, just bodies morphing into vegetation fungi well yeah well fun- yeah, exactly so fungi and plants but veget- you know, morphing into other stuff um yeah what do you think of the the second half because i thought that was almost more like a like a political thriller like I, I wondered for example like it's clear that the way the film presents it that the right-wing republican factions of the american government have almost embraced the fungus as a pretext to launch a military dictatorship and yeah. i wondered whether it'll emerge that, that there's these right-wing factions planted the virus or res- mm. the fungus or mm. responsible for it. Like it becomes almost a dystopian political allegory. Yeah. The second I, half. I thought the strongest aspect of this pilot was how elliptical it was. Mm. You know, we start with this prologue in the 1960s, mm. you know, this sort of sepia tinged mm. um, interview with a mycologist and mm. a virologist. And then, you know, big ellipsis, mm. 2003, we're not really explained where this virus comes from, what, how it operates. Um, we're only given very limited glimpses, partial glimpses mm. of, of the actual impending apocalypse mm. and then another ellipsis to the present to the world completely transformed but we're not exactly sure how how this geopolitical alignment has taken place what are the rules of this world what what is on the outside mm. so there's a sublimity to, between the inside so inside this quarantine zone the new boston mm. and the outside this this show is just penetrated with enormous enormous mystery and, and foreboding yeah. and possibility and i feel like it will really pick up as they move mm. through these different landscapes, because mm. the, the impression you get, right, is that really outside of these, you know, jealously guarded city-states, everything else is basically chaos. Like there's, yeah. there's slavers, there's, you know, roving bands of, you know, criminals. Yes. So that, that journey that journey will work really well. Yeah. And even the main character, the resting zombie face guy, like, <laughs> it's very unclear how he's affiliated, right? Like he... Yeah. Yeah, so we haven't really said a lot about the yeah. plot, but it just becomes clear that they need, for some reason, the um, the Fireflies, the basically the terrorist organisation, yeah. have had their eye on Ellie since she was born, and she's designed to fulfil some kind of important function for them yes. in wresting control back from the state. Yes. And they enlist Joel to play a role in that. Yes. And look, this is the one part of it, like, I, I have to say, like, I, I found the father-daughter stuff just a little bit cheesy, or it could get a bit cheesy, mm. like, it's a very... Although a lot of this pilot was, you know, 
it took a very long time for them to actually be brought together in their relationship. I think that's crystallized. I think that's where it's heading. I mean, I wouldn't like it, it's him, the girl, and his wife or his partner going out. But I wouldn't be surprised if she gets killed off pretty quickly. Right. And it's interesting. Like I think there's an interesting tension there because let me put it like this: like it made me think of the film Contagion. So I think you know, in American culture and American film, like whenever there's an invading force. It brings up this rhetoric of defending hearth and home, mm. man of the house, gun out the front. Mm. But there's something about pandemics that really defy that. So I think you see that same contagion. Like on the one hand, you have this Matt Damon character who bunkers down at home with his daughter. He's got to protect her at all costs. In the end, he gives her a formal at home because she can't go to school. Like he's the family man defending mm. hearth and home. And yet his role in the pandemic and that kind of masculine defensive agency turns out to be kind of beside the point and almost like a side like mm. a side narrative and actually everything that goes to everything that's instrumental in the pandemic comes around female bodies so it's you know, Gwyneth Paltrow character is the one who contracts it Kate Winslet sacrifices herself to solve it um, Marion Cotillard is kidnapped while she's on an important research mission Jennifer Ely tests the vaccine on her body so there's this sense that like pandemics and you know viruses and fungi they they speak to this primal American need, you know, for the father to defend, especially his daughter mm. and other women. But something about the nature of virus, just that just doesn't work mm. because it's so insidious. So I think you kind of see that tension here because, like, on the one hand, you know, he, he hates the government. Mm. Joel hates the government. But he hates the government because they shot his daughter and they violated his protective role there. So yeah. it's, there's this kind of weird thing where... On the one hand, there is there's just a tension, I guess, where there is this, you know, fairly vanilla dad protecting his daughter narrative. But at the same time, it doesn't entirely fit within a pandemic, I don't think. And the series seems somewhat aware of that. I just thought that part of it, that human relationship part, maybe works better as a game. I, I found more compelling the, well, the relationship between the girl and the head of the terrorist organisation. I thought right. that was a good relationship and between the adults. But I just I thought that was a little bit hokey. But, okay. you know, in terms of adapting a game, I mean, mm. it's pretty good mm. overall. I just, yeah. yeah, it just captures that. I think, I think the film Outbreak is like that too. So you have in Outbreak this, this need to you know, protect hearth and home and, you know, establish these boundaries. But just viruses and microorganisms. Micro, you know, microscopic organisms don't respect that. No. So, yeah, that that was a bit that I wasn't as into. And I, I have to say, I thought the third act a little bit dragged at times. Okay. But I, I agree with you. It was also elliptical. And look, I thought overall, as a video game adaptation, this was really good. And I'm definitely in, like, for watching more. Yeah. I thought it was. I think the, the best, the best post post apocalyptic um, texts are the ones that are. Both a journey, a quest, mm. but also a mystery. Yeah, I agree. That, that's and I both agree. of those things have to be entwined, and unlocking the mystery is also the solution to the quest, the last stage of the quest. And I think this this elegantly ties those two strands together. That's a nice way to put it, and I, I think it really gets to, especially in our post-pandemic or peri-pandemic era, that the mystery has to be the fungus. Mm. Like, and I think it's it's really effective that they keep that mm. kind of almost on the margins in the later yes. part of the film, like. You know, throughout all of COVID, the question that everyone in the world has wondered has been, well, how did it, where did it come from? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think it was artificially manufactured, but what was the path of transmission? Yeah. And that phantasmatic moment, who was the first person infected? Yes. Like that, that, that need to know where it's like that last scene of contagion where it all comes back to that one encounter that Gwyneth Paltrow has. Yes. That's what all of us at some level are fascinated by that. So I feel like this, it really gets at the mystery 
has to involve and that's why i wonder i mean i wonder if it'll i can't remember how the game ends like i wonder will it will it mm. will it be something unleashed by the american government it feels a bit like that. interesting is this a mini series or is it an ongoing series that's a good question i'm not sure Do the how games long it is. have sequels or yes there's a sequel to okay. last i just let me check that i'm pretty sure that i think they're the last of us two okay yeah. oh, um, interesting okay that's interesting let me just check that yeah because i i my actually my preferred mode of television is actually the mini series I, I like I like a self-contained narrative, um, as as my favourite little subgenre of yeah. TV. I think it's the best way to maintain quality and also narrative propulsion, um, which I, is often lacking in television shows. This so. is interesting. So, The Last of Us Part Two. Yeah, I thought it came out recently. It came out in twenty twenty. It's actually set five years after The Last of Us. So, I wonder what what sort of form this will take. Yeah, and what kind of continuity there is because yeah. the TV show must have been basically in development. Yeah. At the time, the game sequel came out. So, yes. and interestingly, it was this was this TV series in development before the pandemic, mm. in which case it certainly was very opportunistically timed. Resonates in a really yeah. So, I think I think this is a very resonant TV series in this day and age. I like the way that it's it's you know it it takes it very seriously and mm. deals with it, the subject matter very realistically. One thing we might say in that note too is like. I appreciate the fact that it's serious but not self-serious. Yeah. So something something it obviously recalls is The Walking Dead, mm. but it doesn't have any of the pontificating of The no. Walking Dead. It doesn't no. have... It's a kind of like... There's a grim survivalism to it, but yeah. it doesn't have the speechifying yes. that... Um, What's the guy? The Frank Darabont yes. kind of signature. That's walking Frankie, yep. Frank Darabont. It doesn't have That's that right. kind of signature. So, yeah, that I appreciate. Like it's And it's exciting. I mean, it makes you think like so many of these great immersive first-person games like Halo, Half-Life. Imagine what they would be like as really incredibly Red Dead Redemption, like incredibly rendered series. Well, Halo has been made into a series. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. A TV series? And Paramount Plus. Oh, right. <laughs> how, how is it? I haven't seen I it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Perhaps something for a future archive. Future call. archive. But other ones like Half-Life, you know, Bioshock, mm. Red Dead Redemption, like those kind of really, even like, you know, Miss, like those just really, those games that are almost hyper cinematic you know they're more if you could just bottle that as a series mm. that would be incredible so maybe this is going to be the first step in that direction um yeah. and look i had a few quibbles but i think it's amazing yeah. overall like i think I it's, this it's was utterly compelling incredibly yeah. incredibly accomplished pilots so look I'm, I'm a hardy this could be the first appointment viewing television series for 2023 yeah. it could be one of our post um Post podcast shows that we watch as well. It could be put it put it slotted in with the X Files. <laughs> it could be. Uh, this is, this is great. It's, yeah. it's excellent TV. Yeah, I really liked it. All right, on to our next series. Mm. Our next series comes from Netflix mm. um, for all purposes, and it's um, it's called Copenhagen Cowboy, and it comes from the auteur Nicholas Wending Wending Reffin, or um, as he calls himself here. NWR. Yes, an he's NWR. Go, he's going joint. for the just going for the accurate the initials now. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, he's got his own signature style, obviously, and he's mm. sort of patented in this series. Uh, this is his first Danish language um, text for a while, and it follows a a young girl called Mew, uh, who is um, effectively trafficked into a a family in Copenhagen. Based on her uh, mystical properties, her mm. you know witch-like properties. Um, so, in the course of this uh, series, which chronicles Copenhagen's criminal underworld, consistent with Winding Reference earlier Pusher series. Mm. Have, you, have you seen the Pusher? Only the first one. Okay. 
Uh, so there's three Pusher mm. uh, films, which I think are actually probably his most effective oh, cool. um, okay. films of all. Um, so we see, you know, a real glimpse into the criminal underworld, especially human the human trafficking underworld. Mm. So the household in which Mew is um, is uh, integrated is a house run by a sort of shadowy criminal enterprise featuring an old older lady and her brother who runs a sex trafficking ring mm. um, so featuring Eastern Eastern European yeah, largely Albanian yep. Serbian Serbian women so um, Mew is slightly different because the other women have been trafficked for sex whereas she's been trafficked for her mm. for her um, her luck bearing properties mm. so they, there's a repeated refrain that you know a hundred years ago she would have been burnt at the stake mm. because of um, these these sort of folkloric qualities that she has mm. um, also consistent with all Nicholas Winding Refn text. This is very slow. It's very languorous. Well, it's very drenched in neon. Well, I was going to say, like we um we did another Nicholas Winding Refn series, a you know a couple of episodes. Too old to die young. I mean, this was I mean this episode is a lot shorter than that pilot. Like mm. that pilot was like an hour and forty five minutes yeah. or something. This is only fifty minutes, but this was even more glacial. And watching it, I mean, I'm not I'm not even sure it. The best way to describe this is as television. Like it's it's. I don't know, it's like a mood piece or a tone poem. <laughs> it's or like a, a perfume commercial. Or a fashion event, yeah. yeah. Or like, or something to be shown in a gallery, like mm. an installation. Like you mm. can see people, you can see people wandering in and out of its ambience. Mm. I think it's, and I mean, it is really glacial. So the characters are almost like mannequins. The characters, mm. be, so the characters barely move. Yeah. And there's like... And I mean that literally, like most of the shots are just of characters standing or sitting yeah. still. It's, it's almost like his signature style and it's static, yes. static actors and a mobile camera. And very propulsive score. Mm. So you have this really, so it ends with this really dramatic montage sequences. I, I assume it's Cliff Martinez again. There's the music just peaks and peaks and peaks and the camera just shifts from one immobile body to the next. Mm. But it's it's very hypnotic. It it But it, it's something other than regular television like it doesn't oh, yeah. it doesn't feel like te- but it doesn't feel like television is even the medium it's also in terms of linking it to his works i mean i felt eye violence was imminent here have, have you seen the neon demon i have so you know anybody who's seen the neon demon will know will know the eye violence scene i'm talking about but there's actually a scene here where it's intimated that the the woman what's the main woman's name the the main woman is going to do something to muse eyes or to her eyes to yes. bring back her magical powers. So it's, yeah, it's certainly, I have to say, I um, I found it more immersive in some ways than Too Old to Die Young. Just because I it's, think this is actually a lot more effective than Too Old to Die Young. It's so radically itself mm. and it's so uncompromising that you kind of sink into its ambience yeah. and just go with the flow. I think interesting as well, this is written not written by him. Oh, uh, okay. So it's written by Sarah Isabella Johnson. Okay. And so it does It does have yeah, right. more of a female voice yep. here. And um, it, it is a bit more plot-driven than Too Old to Die Young. And Too Old to Die Young was so, was so slow that mm. it, it, was, it was almost imperceptible that things were happening. Well, it's funny when you said this is his first Danish language series because mm. it made me realise with Too Old to Die Young, I had literally no memory of what language it was in <laughs> just because the dialogue was so... The dialogue was just it was like... like Dadaist, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the dialogue was just like stylized sound. Yeah. I mean, I thought this too were like... I thought this was interesting conceptually to beyond just his stylization. Like this felt to me, it's like a really amazing portrait of Europe. Like it's mm. like this new brutal Europe where everything is about the trade in underground bodies. Mm. So as you said, there's sex workers, there's women who are being trafficked. 
and also this woman who is being held, you know, and paid as a mystic. And it just kind of, and that combined with this influx of Eastern European, Eastern European people into the, you know, Western Europe, it just, it kind of captured this, yeah, this illicit, underground, unseen Europe, which, yeah, subsists on the trade of undocumented or unregulated or unrecognised bodies. Mm. And there's such, you know, in keeping with that, there's such an eerie stillness. Like this, It's like the stillness to the film almost affects a perceptual shift where you see this whole other Europe just sitting beneath the surface mm. that you don't normally... Mm. It's almost like a return of the repressed narrative where the East infects the West and we have all this, you know, this, you know, arcane. Hidden, hidden arcane folkloric... Well, know, I, I was going to say qualities too, absolutely, and it's, that it's, bubble up to the surface. Yeah, and it, so it's like exactly. So on the one hand, it is this new brutal Europe, but it's also like a return to an almost medieval Europe. Yeah. So there's a bit where I can't remember exactly what happens, but the woman who wants to get pregnant, who's you know who's paying you, she, I think what happens is she she starts bleeding or something goes wrong with the pregnancy, yeah. and she considers performing like a medieval ritual on Mew, like yeah. eating her brains yeah. or doing something really intense, exercising. Yeah. yeah, so it's like this atavistic Europe, this as you said, repressed medieval Europe, comes to the surface as well. So I just I thought that was really powerful. Like it was like it was saying if you're in Europe and you just listen and stay still long enough, you'll see this return of the of medieval brutality in the guise of the modern trade in bodies. Yeah. And I thought that was like really eerie and just something Reffin does so well is brutality. Yes. Just a kind of, not not even violence, like the brutality and indifference of those with power Yeah. and those with wealth toward other people and the way they reduce them to bodies. Mm. Uh, yeah, mm. I, I thought... I thought it was really powerful yeah. and really immersive. Yeah, I think that's what was really strong about the, the Pusher series. Mm. There was It was much more kinetic than this sort of late, more glacial style mm. that he uses, but there was that equal sense of kind of you know, boredom punctuated by horror, Yeah, like, which is the tenor here. Yeah, the kind of... It's a different vision of the banality mm. of evil. Something else too, I wondered, like something I feel is becoming more and more of a thing in just, I guess, critical discourse is surrogacy and the labour of surrogacy. Mm. So I read a good book a while back which was about how basically, on the one hand, the, the argument of the book is called Full Surrogacy Now by Sophie Lewis, and the argument of the book was on the one hand we need to make, we need to make surrogacy a much more visible and remunerated profession for two reasons. Firstly, because there are a lot of people who just can't have children, you know, people who are single, who are queer who are trans in some cases, who are infertile. But on the other hand, there is already this underground market in surrogacy and across the world there's really inequitable conditions for surrogates. So she was yeah. basically saying that, you know, the kind of nuclear family and social reproduction as we understand that depends upon this enormous unremunerated, unremunerated labour force of surrogates. Mm. And in a way... The main woman here, or the muse, not the main woman, sorry, the mystic, is a kind of surrogate. Yeah, definitely. Like she's there to mystically create the child yes so it's like it's like you've got this underground workforce of like sex work mystics human trafficking it's like surrogacy yeah becomes a part of that as well so in a really interesting way yeah that's right there is there is that and in fact at the beginning i was and i think this is perhaps a bit of narrative misdirection that you assumed that she was actually there as a surrogate to carry the child yeah yeah, yeah. um so that's a, that's a nice little twist yeah i just yeah he's so good at the arcane it's funny like I feel like a lot of films of his now that I kind of was a bit dismissive of at the time, like Only God Forgives, 
now feel like transitional works. Mm. And now that he's fully in this mode, I kind of, I like those films more in mm. retrospect. I think those films were slightly less successful because they sort of penetrated the underworld of an unfamiliar country. Yes. Right? A country that I don't think that his insights into that uncriminal no. underworld were as perceptive as they are here and because kind of the he same knows as, the country. Yeah. And kind of the same as Too Old to Die Young yeah. in a way. That, that's set in America, right? It's set in America, no yeah. sense of... Yeah. Um, exactly. Whereas here, well, here it's like it's it's uncanny, right? It's unhomely. It's yes. his backyard. Yes. It's Denmark, but this isn't the kind of cozy. It's, it's, it's not Higa. No, no. <laughs> this is not Higa. <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? I think so. I think it might be maybe Swedish term, but Huga, I don't know. Higa, Higa, Yeah, like yeah. Look it up. Look it up, listeners. It's H Y double G E. I think it's Danish term for coziness. Okay. This is, and homeliness. Okay. Like this okay. is this is unhiga. This is unheimlich. This is unhiga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or specifically unhiga. So, look. Will I watch more of it intentionally or directly? Maybe not. Might I put it on the background? Maybe. It's <laughs> <laughs> moving wallpaper for a... I'll just watch five minutes at a time. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm I'm intrigued by it. Yeah. Like I I, actually, like... I I actually really like this. Yeah. I thought this is actually... I, I love the Pusher series. And yeah. I, I watched... I kind of binge watched the Pusher series. Mm. And that's what got me into... Um, into reference. I thought... I really like the Neon Demon too. Yep. And this is much more in the vein. Of, it's like a combination of the Pusher yep. series and the Neon Demon. Oh, it's so like, it's the best aspects of Win- Winning Refn. I think this is actually his most successful work in a long time. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that it's only six episodes yes. yep. is is something that's very, uh, you know, uh, tempting for me as well because it's it makes, you know, that glacial pace yep. a bit more bearable to think that there's only, you know, less than five hours of this, you know. And let's be honest, like with all the best intention and interest in the world – too old to die young. I mean, that was that was a mammoth. I mean, I, I think only the most devoted Refn fans yes, could climb that mountain. Only absolute diehards could, could climb get through that. 12, That's a complete hours of that. Yeah. Whereas this is, and look, it's an interesting plot too. It isn't is. It? This it mystic is. It and is. like all his, a lot of his films, you feel that the revenge and the escape is going to be proportionate to the. Yes. Have you watched any more of it? I have not, but I know okay. that the first episode is called Mew the Mysterious, and the second is Vengeance is My Name. Okay. So, <laughs> Interesting. So things, obviously, the, the stakes are upped, and uh, yeah. and Mew might come back with uh, yeah. with Vengeance. Yeah. So, look, yeah, I, I, I was very surprised by this. I was not expecting to enjoy it, mm. and I was expecting to be sort of, you know, lulled into a stupor. Mm. Um, I'm already kind of lulled into a stupor out of jet lag. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this <laughs> and is, even deeper stupor. Well, maybe this is because you know there are certain kinds of films that work brilliantly on planes. Like yeah. I watched the remake of Baywatch on the plane. Oh, really? Maybe okay. this is this is cinema for jet lag. Perhaps the whole thing is in there. And again, like it is to bring it back to that kind of new Europe thing. Like the whole thing takes place in this strange twilight world. Mm. Like it is. It feels like it feels like a new world order. Yes. Kind of emerging yes. just from. So yeah, look, I I'm. Does something that turn me off too? You know how there's a group of sex workers who kind of gang up against Mew? Yeah. The lead one for a brief moment I thought was Brooke Satchwell from Neighbours. <laughs> I d- it wasn't. I checked. But I just, I the whole time... That would be a real, a real turn in her yeah. career. You know, from, uh... well, remember, remember we saw that film Sleeping Beauty. You, you didn't like that, did you? I thought it was okay. okay. It had some good moments. I, love, I loved it, yeah. but it, there, there's, a, there's a very intense orgy scene in it. Mm. And one of the participants was Benita from Play School. Oh, I remember yes. that I was like, Benita? Like, what is Benita doing in this scene? Like, it was just the most intense thing. Yeah. Um, it, so that, that was, I had that kind of Brooke Satchel moment where I was like, is, is, there, is there a neighbor's <laughs> ref? But no, it wasn't. Look, yes, look, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not sure I'm in or out. Yeah. Just like the film. Yeah, that's it, true. That's true. If, just it, like the film, you're, it, you're kind of neither here nor there. If I happen to be in the same room as it at some point <laughs> again, if I happen to find myself in the same room. 
If it's playing in an art gallery, you'll walk through the room. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to be honest, you know, and maybe I'm a bit biased. Perhaps briskly, but you will walk well, through the no, room. I was, was going to say, like, yeah, I feel like a lot of video art you see in galleries, and this is just, it's not my area of interest, but a lot of video art you see in galleries is not beautiful. Yes. This I would love, I would actually would love to walk into and watch in a gallery yeah, on, on yeah. a big screen. Yeah. So For five minutes or so, and then five minutes, but, but, but <laughs> then go on your merry way. <laughs> five minutes, toddle off. Five minutes, but do a circuit of the gallery and then come back. Come back. So you wander in and out. Yes. Yeah. Or if you worked in the gallery, just wander in a couple of times each day. Like yes. it's like you return to it. Yes. It's still serial. It's still a serial experience. Watch it in a piecemeal yeah. manner. It's the seriality yeah. of wandering in and out yeah. of the gallery room. Brief immersions. Yeah. Dipping it, your toe in. Like Sydney Modern should have you have you been to Sydney Modern? <laughs> I like not. oh that it's it's good. There's a lot of there's a lot of gimmicky stuff there. Um, the highlights of the, the Yerubana Gallery is amazing. The Indigenous okay. Gallery, and there are two amazing installations. That's all great. Okay. But the other stuff, yeah, a bit gimmicky. They need some reffing. <laughs> they need some reffing okay. in there, which would be great. Put a bit of Netflix on. Crack yep. a bit of Netflix on. It. <laughs> that's that's what we're going to put in the yeah. So yeah, this was like yeah. Netflix and jet lag. Yeah, a series to go to sleep to. Yeah, or or not to go to sleep to. To be to, 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 I, I feel like the experience of this series is to look at the screen and be like, have I been asleep? Have <laughs> I been true. asleep for the last, what's been happening? I lost all track of time watching this. So I watched it quite late and I was like, have I been watching it? I mean, I was thinking. You know, doze off. I think actually, this is a bit embarrassing. I was thinking about what sandwich I was going to get the next day. And I looked up and I was like, oh, Copenhagen Cowboy's still going. So I guess not, not pork. No, not pork. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so look, I, I, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I think I think you're right. I think it's it's yeah. the best thing in a long while. Look, I'm an in, but you know, check back on me in a month, and I may would not have seen any of it. But yeah. I'm an in. Next time you fly, I'm in. I also have concerns about the eye violence. There's not, there is eye violence coming. Yeah, I'll report back to you if there's eye violence, and if there is, I'll say there's not. Yeah, I know. This is, this is yeah. This is. I mean, we know this is a thing, right? Like it's. Yeah, yeah. I I, I believe that. Okay. Okay, on to our third show for the week, and. This is one of the more unusual shows we've done in a while. What a premise. And it's it's certainly one that defies our format, isn't yes. it? So it's a series on Netflix called Kaleidoscope. It's about a heist, a major heist. And the twist is that you can, well, unless you kind of deliberately go in and choose the order of episodes, Netflix presents you with a random pilot. Yes. There are eight episodes, each named after a different colour. And apparently when you watch all eight in any order, the plot locks together. But it means that we're now in a position where we have both watched a pilot, but we haven't necessarily watched the, the same, same pilot. I know, so, I know. I uh, love that. I love that. And it's also, I think it, it starts with a little a little uh, prologue or a yep. little outline of the premise, which mm. is about 40 seconds long. Mm. makes you realise that Netflix has increasingly become a sort of gamifying television. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also something I liked about it to jump a bit further back than gaming is that you know, we often talk about how watching something on streaming is just not the same as watching a DVD or watching no. something on live-to-action TV. So it's almost like Netflix removes some of your choice here. Yes. So having Netflix tell you what you have to watch and not not having that autonomy actually is very pleasurable. Like yeah. I, felt, I felt immersed in this. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's a bit like having ad breaks. Yeah. Like I felt like there was a forced restriction or constriction here which made it kind of quite interesting. Mm, mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's almost like Netflix gets it with the endless streaming choice. People sometimes just want to be told what to watch. Yeah, I know. So I know. Just let the chef cook. Let the chef cook. So <laughs> I'm curious, what episode did you get? What I, got, I got yellow I got six ye- weeks before the heist. I got yellow as well. Perhaps everyone gets yellow. No, I no. don't think so. He, okay. uh, and let me tell you why. Um, so basically in terms of what happens in yellow, you have... Um, all the participants of the heist preparing for it six weeks beforehand, right? Mm. So the first thing I thought was, 
I wonder if this is the first episode in the series. And that's why that. it's come first. And I, you know, because in many ways it plays like a conventional heist setup. So mm. I thought maybe, I, th- I thought one of two things. I thought maybe I've re- they've just automatically programmed the first episode. Yeah. And I've got that. Or maybe I just happen to have got the first episode. And for that reason, I'm having probably a more traditional experience of the show than anybody else. Yeah. And so. Leading on from that, one of the things I realised is that when you've got a, a structure like this, it's very hard to get any sense of the time frame. Mm. But apparently, I'm not sure if it came up in your... What, what episode came up after Yellow for you? I didn't get to the next episode. So after me, the one that came up was Green. And Green's six years before. I think it's, tw- it's planned over like 25 years or something. Okay, host. right. So, so there's an enormous timeline. So this is so Exactly. So this is something that I wondered watching and I thought, well, what is the timeline and what is the time frame? Mm. And I thought that was interesting because, like, so much of a great heist film I think of is it's the centrifugal rhythm of everything coming together for the heist and the, I guess, the centripetal, centripetal movement of everything coming apart after the heist. So yeah. it's convergence and divergence. And that's the bread and butter of heist narratives. I thought that was done... This captures that so well. So my sense is that every episode will be both a convergence and a divergence. So... The one we watch yellow is everything coming together for the heist, but also in the form of another mini heist that is more chaotic than they expect it to be. So mm. that whole, that kind of in and out convergence and divergence rhythm of the heist is kind of there in the big narrative, but also built into every episode. Yeah, and they seem like there are lots of mini heists on the yeah, way. Yeah. So it does provide some action. It's not all just people staring at no. you know, blueprints Blue- for yeah. hours on end. That's something I wondered too was if this just say this is the first episode. I mean, it's obviously not. There's one before it, but it's 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 pre-heist. I wonder if I saw this episode last, would it be revelatory in a way that I that it's not now? Well, the, yeah, the idea, I guess, is that, you know, everything you, you look at is add additional adding, resonance, yeah. add, you know, adding, so that's, adding more to this So that's a weird puzzle. thing. Like, yeah. it's kind of like watching and re-watching at the same time. So it's yeah. like, what I'm seeing now just looks like a straightforward narrative. Yes. But if I were to watch this last, it would resonate in what, you know, do you yeah. know what I mean? So this was, asynchronous viewing experience, I think, is very yeah. interesting. Um, I hope we didn't, I hope we got both got yellow by coincidence. I, I think, hope it's yeah, not prescribed. I, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. I'd be very intrigued to see if someone else get something else because there was a little bit paint by numbers the beginning of this yes which made me realize oh is this it's like is this every episode so i wonder so expository. i wonder if maybe they put yellow first for everyone and then it's random yes maybe yellow maybe is the kind the of is the teaser maybe that's the case it's interesting too because i thought that you know obviously heists are all about basically breaking into physical spaces mm. and just in the era in the digital era the era of the internet that's less just resonant in some ways. Mm. You have digital heists, you have virtual heists, but that idea of breaking into a physical space ramifies less in a digital ecology. But this addressed that so well by making like almost like the digital medium a physical structure in itself. Mm. So the series becomes this physical object that you almost have to navigate, that's navigated for you. So that, I don't know, like that fracturing of physical space into digital space is, is... kind of built into the premise which presents you with this fragmented mm. digital object yeah yeah true true um what do you think of the show on its own terms? now that we've watched the same thing what do you think of the show kind of on its own terms i thought the show was awful yeah so i, <laughs> so I love the premise yep. and i was super super yep. excited um by <laughs> by the idea of 
watching you know this this show just you know at random asynchronously and i was really almost hoping that i'd just binge watch it in one go mm. i found the show almost unwatchable uh I won't. I won't lie. Mm. I found it very boring. Yeah, and um, it wasn't even that it was hard to follow. In fact, I found it quite easy to follow. Mm. The heist narrative. It was quite clearly laid out. Mm. You know, they're looking at these unmarked bearer bonds. The Die Hard. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, from Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just found the characters so dull. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I found it. I found it boring towards the end as well, and I. I was a bit puzzled by it because I, I was. I was quite engaged at first, but I think I was engaged more by the concept mm. than by the plot. And then I found myself surprisingly kind of losing interest about halfway through and not really knowing why it was, but then suddenly realising about two-thirds of the way through, oh, just because it has this high concept structure doesn't mean the individual episode is good. And no. I guess I wondered, part of me wondered too, is because it is a fragmented experience and because you only see a part of the story, do I just need to be more patient? Is this Is this kind of... Is this this dissatisfaction? Is this built into what it's meant to be? No, I don't think but so. But I, I think, think it was. I don't think it's very well written. It was kind of tedious. And the characters are, are like you know they're, they're, each character t- you know t- tries to have a moment mm. you know like a really charismatic moment, but oh, it's it's really forced. I guess it's one of the things where the premise is so great structurally, but you can really see the mechanics of yes. it. It's like just to make it work, obviously. The characters have to be somewhat streamlined and they have to do their actions have to be very telegraphed in each episode mm. and just it does feel like that's close to the surface i did quite like seeing giancarlo esposito in a naturalistic role yeah rather it, than it gustavo fring i mean yeah. like it's very strange to see him just having just you know getting the end of better call saw like it's, it's just very strange to see him in this completely naturalistic role yeah but yeah it was i don't think i would go quite so far as to say i thought it was awful um, or that I was completely bored just because, maybe partly because I was still slightly entranced by that structure and maybe just because the sheer fact of Netflix telling me what to watch made me more engaged. I mean, if, I, if I've if i got a streaming service up, you know, I'm a laptop, I'm not going to choose to watch Cops and Robinsons. But if it's 8.30pm on a Friday night in 1999 <laughs> and Cops and Robinsons <laughs> is the only thing on TV, time. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I mean, you're saying with relatives in the country and there's not a lot you know, to do outside. I mean, there's, there is nothing more incredible than Cops and Robinsons. So true. it was like that. So it's I kind true. of feel like, I feel like just because, just because I, was, I, was, I was kind of captivated just because I was kind of captured by it. Mm. Like, I just, this is what I've got to watch. This is what Netflix is telling me to watch. So I had a kind of higher tolerance threshold. Yeah, yeah, no, I guess that's true. It's a throwback to that old, you know, yeah. you'll watch what I tell you to watch. Yeah, exactly. Here of kind of command and control television. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I think for that reason, I never, for me, it never sunk to the level of awful or the level of boring. But yeah, I mean, I guess another way of putting it, am I compelled to watch on for the story? Not really. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I may be compelled to watch one or two more episodes. It's a bit like maybe... Um, Eighteen ninety nine was that the year? Oh yeah, was that, was that, was that was the year the, the ship one? Was that the there's so many yes. series at the moment with, with, with a year name? It's like nineteen twenty three, eighteen seventy three, yeah, eighteen ninety nine. Titanic one, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was one where like if I was interested to keep watching, it wasn't really exactly because of the story or the characters, but the ingenuity, yeah, of uh, the overarching the plot mechanic, the yeah, mechanic. So yeah. this is a bit yeah. like that as well. So yeah. yeah, I just I like the idea of it just because I feel like the heist film has waned a lot in recent years. The rhythms, the beats, the spaces. And this, even if it was flawed, it was an interesting attempt to renew that. And mm. and I hope becomes a precedent. Like, I hope we get these series that yeah. you jump around. That's really interesting. I like the idea of Netflix 
you know, playing with the medium because mm. we need innovation yep. in storytelling, mm. especially given the possibilities of the platform. Like, um, did you see that uh, Dark Mirror episode where it was a choose your own adventure? Oh, Bandersnatch. Bandersnatch. Yeah, that was I interesting. Thought, I thought that was a great premise and I'm just surprised no one's really followed up on it. Yeah, so, true. Well, you know, James Cameron's, you know, Avatar series, you know, reinvented cinema by mm. incorporating really incredible 3D and then mm. it hasn't really been pursued at all. That's um, re- that's same thing. I, I'm really hoping for much more narrative innovation. That's really that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's surprising, isn't it? Like th- th- there is so much you can kind of theoretically do with streaming. Mm. Why aren't... I mean, yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if that will be the next thing that you... This ushers in a way, yes. this series like that where I, it's... I want to see more gamification of television. I want to see... I want to see more experimentation. Because I know, like, next week we're going to be doing that um, Ryan Johnson show, Poker Face. Yeah. Like, like that, for example, sure you know, is part of the premise of that is that each episode is standalone. Mm. Like, it's a standalone thing. So, again, it's, in a more modest way, it's rejecting that serial just continuity. Mm. So, things... Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I, for all those reasons, I, I, I kind of... I was kind of endeared to Kaleidoscope. And I, I, I also... I feel like I'm allergic to pretentious high concept stuff. I didn't think this was pretentious no, high concept. I just no. it was a bit dull, yeah, and a bit, but it wasn't affected. So I I just feel like it was it was a good earnest attempt to do something really original. Mm. And I'm definitely not a hard out. Perhaps it will gain power in watching the different episodes and seeing that. the ingenuity really at play. But certainly the characters mm. are so dull that really it's got to be some sort of narrative ingenuity that gets you through. Yeah, or maybe if if as we've speculated everybody gets this yellow episode, then it starts to branch off. Maybe this episode is the most vanilla mm. and then it starts to become a little bit more intricate mm. and it starts to build up over time. Mm. Mm. Um, well, report back to me, Billy. Yeah, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm definitely not an out on it. Um, yeah, I'll let you know. But certainly I'm interested now to talk to people see what their pilot was. And this is... Yeah. I, I'm kind of disappointed we didn't get a different pilot. But yes. at the same time, it's interesting that we got the one we did. Mm. So, look, mm. I'm a provisional in. I thought it was interesting. Okay, yeah. Okay, onto our archive corner. Now I know it's been a long time between drinks. Well, it's funny this one for me because you know, this is your choice, and I, I watched it at the very end of last year, not at the very end, in early December, because we thought we might do one more episode before you went overseas. Yes, but we didn't. So I, I haven't seen this for about seven weeks. Yeah, so I know, I'm a little I bit know. dusty, a little bit dusty on it. So you, I'll, I've just had a look back over my notes, and we'll. Yeah, so I'll give the introduction. Yep. So we're looking at Dope Sick, which is a mini series. Um, that premiered on Hulu or Disney Plus in Australia. It's based on a non-fiction book called Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors and the Drug Company that Addicted America by Beth Macy. And it premiered in 2021. It consists of eight episodes that, in a non-linear fashion, trace the opioid epidemic as it arose courtesy of the malpractice of the of the Sackler family and mm. their, their company. It's a bit like Steven Soderbergh's traffic, but for like Oxy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, so the particular focus of the series is on the epicenter of America's uh, opioid addiction, which is a, a small mining community in West Virginia. Yeah. App- Appalachia kind of territory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But um, it cuts between several different narrative strands to explain mm. exactly how OxyContin was created, mm. um, how it was pushed through this network of, uh, of uh, sales representatives, mm. how it was prescribed by doctors. And mm. the, the closest thing I guess we have to a protagonist in this series is Michael Keaton, mm. who plays a, a GP mm. in this small uh, West Virginian town. Mm. And then the users 
including Caitlin Deaver's character, mm. who is injured in a mine accident and is prescribed OxyContin. Um, it also, also deals with, obviously, the, the, the way in which mm. a series of you know, cynicism, conflict of interest, mm. apathy and ignorance led to one of the greatest health calamities in the, uh, the mm. 21st century. Mm. Um, I don't think this was such a, an issue in Australia the overprescription of no, opioids. I have no. Have you ever taken an opioid? Like I have never taken an I've opioid. I've had. Yeah. I, I think Panadine Fort is an opioid. Okay. Got, and I, I had that after I had surgery, and it, it's funny. Like it's. I I thought Panadine Fort was it was fine. Like I only had it for a week or two, but I, I thought it was just like a strong Panadol. Mm. It's very different. Like yeah. it makes you feel very. It changes your mood. You sleep very deeply. It's you know it's very different to say just you know it's prescribed obviously but mm. it's very different just to a paracetamol it's it's a high yeah and it, it makes you feel good yeah so you one, can see how it could become absolutely very so. addictive so one of the vexed questions here is is exactly what is what was the the motivation mm. of the Sackler family in mm. in pushing this particular drug now one of the one of the members who is particularly involved in mm. the development of this drug claims that. He wants to treat pain differently. He wants mm. to radically transform America's view on pain, mm. and in particular chronic pain, mm. and make it seem like pain is not something that people need to deal with. Mm. There's a kind of utopian vision here, which you're not sure whether it's rhetoric or, mm. or reality. Um, but in, at least according to the, the PR, the OxyContin was you know, claimed to be non-addictive because it had this delayed release mechanism, which prevented people from experiencing a high. And I think what was really fascinating here is explaining exactly why it was that it was it was pushed so heavily to these particular communities in mm. rural and regional US mm. farming, you know, factory, you know, mining communities. It was because people there suffered from injuries from their job and as a result often they couldn't had... afford health yeah, like I was gonna say just to intervene, like I read a great book I read a fantastic book a couple of years ago when I was on my real kind of true crime flow called American Pain and I, mm. I forget who it was by it was an academic but actually by an academic at the University of West Virginia and it was so similar to this that I, I thought mm. this was initially an adaptation of it and the thing that most fascinated me about it was exactly what you've said exactly what I found fascinating here the way basically that the PR campaign launched on behalf of Oxy and specifically mm. that narrative that was pushed that Americans were suffering from a pain epidemic mm. and that Americans were under-prescribed pain medication mm. and that, yeah, that, that pain was almost like a disease that had to be fixed with oxy. So that that's fascinating to see how that plays out. And in American pain is partly about what they call the pill mill. So as you said, it targeted Appalachia. It was like, you know, poorest part of the country, lots of workplace accidents. and But it was... The, reg the legislation was most relaxed in Florida. Mm. So this book's about just the enormous, you know, economy and people coming from West Virginia, Kentucky, you know, Tennessee, down to Florida and back again. Um, it reminded me a little bit of that series we watched, The Peripheral. Oh, with, yes. Remember how yeah. that was basically about this new virtual world order um, where people, but it kind of comes out of that Appalachian area. So mm. that... That, that area, because of its poverty, is, is vulnerable in that series to this digital manipulation, whereas here it's this medical manipulation. Yeah. But just that idea that, that Americans were under-prescribed for chronic pain, the pain itself was an epidemic, mm. it's, as you said, it's eerie because it's, the logic is so compelling. Yes, and yes. The you idea can understand of, why people fell for it. Absolutely. So that, I think this, this pilot does a great job of just capturing 
the genesis of that argument. And I remember something American Pain made me realize too, it's just like how concerted this PR campaign was. Like, mm. you know, like hundreds, maybe thousands of doctors, of practitioners, of salesmen, just the enormous resources and manpower put into peddling this narrative yeah. which is captures yeah and and the way in which these sales representatives are effectively drug peddlers yeah just with suits like there's a great scene in this isn't there where one of the drug peddlers the oxy peddlers basically convinces michael keaton to sell it mm. and it's just it's a great he brings him kfc yes and michael keaton is such he's He's such a great eating actor. Yeah. Like he always, he always looks like he's chewing his words. Yes, that's he's true. always got mouthfeel. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. so they have this incredible scene, you know, this pivotal scene where he's just eating KFC. Yes, it's a great scene. <laughs> like he just he he's really good in it. Yeah, and I, I think obviously to capture you know the sweep of a nonfiction book is very challenging, mm. and to anchor it to give it you know um, emotional resonance, mm. stakes, um, and just the, the sheer just narrative mm. challenge that 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 poses, um, I think is met here because we have a, a, a strand which I think is involves two um, Virginian prosecutors, mm. one played by Peter Sarsgaard, mm. who are investigating, um, you know, this this pharmaceutical company. Then we also have the the, the narrative of the GP with mm. Michael Keaton, and um, and obviously inside the the Sackler family mm. themselves. Each of these these plot strands is, is I think, equally compa- compelling. Mm. And uh, I, I th- yeah, I th- the, th- the jumping in between time yeah. is, is done very, very lucidly. And I, I thought that was one of the great strengths of this. So, like, it's it's really methodical. Mm. Like, it's it really, it seems to understand that to really capture the intricacies of this conspiracy, basically, mm. you've got to be methodical. It's also, it's slow, but it's slow in the sense of capturing something massive, inexorably rolling into place Mm. like this huge sea change in american culture and it's almost like you know oxy part of what they use to market oxy is this idea that it has a delayed reaction Mm. there's this really strong sense of a delayed reaction narratively too so all Mm. these pieces are put into place that then have these massive effects years later yes there's that sense of clearly like the everything rolling into place yeah the cause and effect the effect yeah. is so great but the cause it's about tracing back to the cause yeah. and there is that delayed impact of mm. the cause and for that reason like it felt to me a bit like a pandemic narrative or mm. a plague narrative so it's like it's like we're watching like in a plague narrative the inception like this moment at which oxy takes over american culture so and there's a real analogy in it i think there's an analogy I seem to remember six weeks ago that's drawn between AIDS and Oxy. Mm, yes. So, you know, the Caitlin Deaver character, um, Michael Keaton prescribes her Oxy. She's, I think, the first person he prescribes Oxy to just after she comes out to him as a lesbian and he says he'll help her get out of town if, mm. if the homophobic reaction is too strong. So there's just... The fact that the first person who takes Oxy is someone who's just come out as gay in a hostile area, there's just that resonance with the AIDS crisis and that this kind of Oxy plague, the first person you see it really targets is a kind of vulnerable queer person. Yeah, and that's why I guess it's easy to dismiss as well. And you yep. think perhaps one of the reasons why they targeted these communities as well is because if it, it did have negative repercussions, mm. they'd be minimised yep, or exactly. you know, they're, they're rationalised as, you know, they're, oh, this, this is a loser part of the community. They're not that, people who matter. Exactly. But yeah, so it was like, yeah, that was my sense. It was like a, it was like a pandemic, a plague. It feels, mm. it feels, it was made in 2021. I'm, it feels inflected through the pandemic. Just mm. as you said, it's about tracing it back to this inception point and, and the, the methodical, slow-moving 
delayed reaction quality of it, which mirrors the drug, just captures that sense of like all these things being put in place that months, years later would have this enormous impact. I mean, I, I thought it was great. Like mm. I, mm. from a distance, I thought it might be just a bit of a kind of issue of the week series, but mm. I, I was hooked. Yeah. This is what TV does really well, I yeah. think. They're telling these long form narratives where mm. lots of, you know, big cast of characters, mm. very complex narrative, um, lots of different strands to juggle. Mm. Um, this is where you've got those long form mm. storytelling is is so effective. And kind of novelistic. Yes. I mean, you know, I know it's a highfalutin comparison, but it reminded me a bit of David Simon, just like mm. this really yeah. detailed systems narrative. Weirdly, it reminded me a lot of the, the last film I saw before the pandemic. That's burned in my mind. Dark Waters. Oh, yeah. Todd yeah, Hayden. Yeah, yeah. You've seen yeah, that? I like, have, yeah. So that's... I, what was the company for that? That was about um, was, DuPont. Yes. So it's, if you haven't seen it, it's about the man who tried to take down DuPont, um, the DuPont company, for contamination around factories. And mm. this has this, it's a, it's a long film and it feels like a long film, Dark Waters. Um, Dark Waters or Deep Waters? Dark Waters. Yeah. Deep Waters has been Affleck and, sna- <laughs> and Snails. But it's got that same... I mean, you made you realise that Dark Waters feels a bit like a television series. Yeah. That same density and murk and procedural difficulty in getting to the heart of it. So, um, yeah, I just thought this was fascinating and mm. really timely. And it's, just, yeah, it's great when you've got something that, you know, a story that matches mm. the medium mm. it's so, I, per- so perfectly. Yeah, and... Just a great procedural too. So I, this was, I thought it was an excellent archive choice, and yeah. you know, really, I, I didn't have any sense it would be this good. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, I, mm. I was actually surprised by how good it was, how mm. compelling, um, you know, how propulsive the mm. the procedural quality would be. And and kind of, I guess, one of our pet peeves, I guess, in the show is is television that's kind of slow for the sake of it mm. or somber. And this was, I thought, a rare example of a show that that did move slowly but in a really galvanising way, yeah. in a very methodical, like fact-finding, scrupulous, getting all the pieces together, like, yeah, suggesting this this enormous wave of catastrophe mm. on the horizon mm. that, you know, many Americans are now living in. Mm. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think I love the miniseries, Billy. I think, I think the miniseries... I think, <laughs> I think I'm all about the miniseries. I agree. I mean, or, or I kind of go both ways. So I like I like the miniseries, but then I like the long-form comfort series. Yeah. I like, you know, sitcoms, Real Housewives, Beverly Hills. Um, in terms of comfort shows or shows that are kind of a little bit more lowbrow, archive choice for next week. <laughs> I've, I've taken inspiration from you in three ways okay. for this one. So, yeah. so something you often do is choose a recent show yeah. for Archive Corner. So I've chosen a recent show. You've also tended to choose reality television more, so I've chosen a reality show. But I'm also taking inspiration from your trip. We're going to do Dubai Bling. Oh, okay, sure. The the, the new reality show on Netflix. This has got huge traction. Like everybody I know is talking about it, even people who aren't particularly into reality television. I thought, you know, I'm curious to see it. But I also thought it could be fun just given that you've just got back from Dubai. Absolutely. You've been in Dubai for... and Provide some insights. You had an interesting take on Dubai. Remember you said it was like materialistic but very pious. Yes. At the same time. It was like Vegas. Vegas with shopping malls. Yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vegas without casinos. I just think that everything you've just experienced in Dubai could be really fun just to juxtapose with the show and to mediate through the show. Sure. I'm very interested. Yeah. I think it's been nice and apt. I've had a lot of people from quite... With, I think of having quite different televisual sensibilities recommend it to me too. So wow. I'm, I'm not a huge reality guy, but I just thought with you back from the Middle East, 
this could be kind of fun. Sure. So I'm up for it. Next week, Dubai Bling, and we weekly from now on as well, unless you're going to the Middle East for another six weeks in the near future. I don't know. If, if okay. my masters call me, yep. okay, I cool. will answer that call. And I will... We'll also go into your trip in more detail next time with Dubai Bling so we can just go through the key highlights. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>